Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. And I've got a slightly different episode to bring to you. If you've never listened to one of our career insight conversations before, this is where I grab a member of the team or an experienced person within industry to explain a little bit more about what they do in order to lift the lid and give some more insights as to what those types of careers really entail. The goal is to give you more clarity so that you can make better decisions about your future career. So with that in mind, Let's dive in. Okay, so to help educate the community about different roles in finance, I'm really pleased to have grabbed Milandeep away from his desk for a short moment in time to have a conversation. And Milan will give a little bit about his background in a moment. But we're going to time this discussion around a lot of students are going to be graduating soon, or indeed they are in an application process at the moment. And a lot of students are somewhat curious about positions in quantitative finance. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to position yourself best for roles in quant finance, but more so specifically about the different roles that exist within that umbrella term. Because sometimes I feel like it's a little bit misunderstood. People say they want to be a quant, but then what does that actually mean? Because we could pretty much deconstruct that into several different roles that would uh, create a, a team within that domain. So, so Milan, great to have you with us. Perhaps you could just give yourself a little bit of an introduction, your background, what you do day to day at Amplify. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Ant. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to be back. I think it's been over, well, easily like close to two years now, probably since the last time I was 
doing something like this. Um, but yeah, no. So I studied computer science at Royal Holloway. Uh, I graduated in 2022. But I think that the unique thing about me is I was working with Amplify since 2019, uh, around October, I believe, just off the summer internship um, in a like a tech intern role. I didn't used to know how to code very much. I was in my like first year of comps. I, I, I learned the basics and things like that, but it wasn't really applicable, I guess, to a job. Um, and then I pretty much grew with the company and, and grew, you know, as an individual uh, alongside that. So I uh, finished my degree. Uh, I kind of moved up the ranks into like a, a senior DevOps uh, role. Uh, so I was basically like working on like the architecture at Amplify. Uh, and then kind of on the side, I was also working on our quantitative finance simulations. So I'm sure, uh, you know, like the uh, we have the quant trading one for market making. We also have like arbitrage trading. Uh, we also used to do algorithmic trading as like a an introduction, I guess, into Python. Um, so we developed all of those. Um, and then I had a stint away from Amplify for a year where I went to work at PIMCO as a senior like DevOps engineer, um, where I was primarily like supporting the quant teams. Um, and then came back to Amplify as head of engineering, where I guess the biggest shift and difference in what I'm doing day to day is still helping with the architecture and infrastructure, I guess, but a much greater focus on driving like quantitative finance recruitment, I guess, into a more streamlined and approachable pipeline, I guess, for students who are like at university, graduating university, and then even like entering the early stages of their career. So they can like see some nice progression and learn alongside, uh, you know, whatever they're studying. Mm. So, so with the now on that recruitment side, then, so you're, you're, you're pretty well positioned given the fact that you design uh, kind of make and then deliver a lot of these these experiences and so you get to see it almost from end to end you have lots of interactions with these quant students but also on the hiring manager side as well and then seeing and talking to the actual traders for example so if you are a student and you're you're, you're going through that application process or about to embark on it how can you make yourself stand out like what are the essentials and then what are the things that you can do over and above that are going to make you stand out from the crowd yeah i, I think that's one of the great things about this position is like you said i get to see to kind of take a step back and look at everything from an end-to-end -end point of view um i can see where students kind of enter the pipeline and then leave the pipelines as well and i've seen thousands of cvs over my time so um it's really interesting to see how the cvs have developed over the years and obviously how everyone's kind of slowly catching on and learning about the things that can make them stand out. Um, so I think from a student's perspective, the biggest thing that I keep hounding on year year ago, after and after, uh, and it doesn't really change, is just it's all about creating a portfolio, I guess, uh, around yourself and your skills. Um, I, I see computer science very much as an art. You know, it's a, it's a creative kind of uh, skill, you know, being able to program, you are kind of problem solving, but then at the same time, kind of creating new things, right? So when it comes to applying for roles, I think, you know, everyone can have their bachelors and everyone can say they can do Python. Um, but the things that stick stuck with me, I guess, over the years that I've seen from students is when they actually go and show me what they've done. So that could be uh, LinkedIn posts, for example. I, I think, um, you know, people might think, you know, <laughs> 
you're a nobody, you post your LinkedIn post, but no one will see it. But if it's an eye-catching LinkedIn post, and some of the ones that I remember are from students where they've created like really detailed graphics, perhaps around like financial concepts. Um, and then, you know, that financial graphic, I guess, sticks with you. And I'll always remember, oh, I saw this chart on LinkedIn and it was really interesting, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's, that's one thing, because I guess when it comes to recruitment, you know, when you go to look at the individual, it's more than just their educational background, right? You want to see how they fit the cultures of the company. Um, you know, what else do they do outside of work? Uh, well, outside of studies. So to be able to see someone who like, let's say studies engineering or something, and then outside of that learns about finance or explores like finance in their own ways. That's always a, a positive I find. So is that a misconception then? Because I always get the feeling that people just think, right, you just have to be pure maths. You don't need to know anything. You don't need to show these like other motivations and desires. You've just got to be killer at, at maths. So is there a place for that type of individual where they're on another level of mathematical ability, but then that's a niche part of a bigger construct of what makes these teams and so therefore like you say you have got to show other attributes of a more rounded nature yeah i think um always lies with what kind of role that you want to do inside of quant and obviously we'll dive into the different roles um but let's say someone's like a, a mathlete and they go to all these different championships then you could probably ride on that success i guess as being like you know the top in the world uh, for maths um but for anyone else you have to just kind of um, put yourself in a position where like, uh, when you work as a quant researcher, obviously the goal is to use maths to find patterns and identify trends, I guess, that no one else will see, or that let's say someone it's, it's all about finding your edge, right? It's very similar to like normal trading, right? It's just that you're using maths to find an edge, uh, be it like a discrepancy in arbitrage, um, and then justifying that with your hypothesis and then having obviously like some testing done and then backing up your hypothesis until you get to the point where uh, you're able to like successfully prove if it's, uh, you know, true or not. So with the maths, I guess it, it's very much like, uh, let's say like the, the topic of co-integration, if you're able to, well, I would, I would recommend that you apply that yourself, right, on an individual project, have a notebook perhaps that's easily accessible on GitHub where I can go and read and see, okay, this candidate actually is able to understand co-integration from a high level and let's say apply it to financial um, aspects straight away. Obviously not everyone gets the finance, so you could just do it the opposite way. Let's just take the topic of co-integration and apply it to something else. It's it, At the end of the day, is a mathematical formula. It doesn't have to be applied to like financial assets you could apply it to something else um in general it could be anything right do you, do you think generative ai changes the situation where the playing field's a little bit more leveled by the fact that you can lean on tools that can do a lot of that deep level mathematical thinking obviously you still need to know you still need to have the creativity and foresight as what it is that you're trying to produce or what the output is that you want. Um, but do you think that that helps in terms of give other people power to be able to think in a more quantitative way? Uh, yeah, I, I 100%. I think I think it does really change the, the, the playing field. So uh, I'll use an example of myself, actually. So obviously, I did really bad at maths. I had like a, 
an A at GCSE and then I got a U at uh, A level uh, and then I had to drop it, obviously. Um, that would kind of not correlate for the fact that I've then completed my CQF a year ago and obviously I've done all my maths modules at uni. Now, AI wasn't around when I was at uni, so I found those modules extremely difficult. I had to put the hours in. I was like, you know, tutors at uni, like people who knew maths and things like that. That's the the old way, I guess, right? <laughs> I had to put the effort in to actually upskill myself to do to do good at maths. Um, whereas with my CQF, um, honestly, there was like a lot of the mathematical concepts. I just opened up ChatGPT and I asked it and I was like, hey, I'm going to be doing this. Can you explain it to me? And, you know, having that like friend that doesn't judge you, you can ask it the randomest questions, the weirdest questions, and you go down a rabbit hole and you spend a couple hours talking to it. That's what really got me through my CQF and helps me understand these like mathematical concepts today, right? Like assume someone who struggles with maths, let's say from an edu educational perspective would do so well um, at like answering them, right? I got like 80 or 93%, I think, in my last CQF um, exam. And that was all about like arbitrage trading and things like that. Uh, and the reason being is just like, okay, I can go ask my friend who has like a master's in maths, but he can only do so much, right? Um, I was able to actually just sit there and pretty much just like drill it down to the point where I could ask it like, what does this single digit and how did it get from like this number to this number, right? And then, like you said, if you have that creative ability to put things together and know what's going to be the right end result, um, you can get there. But the biggest problem still, I guess, with AI is sometimes it just, uh, you know, starts yeah. hallucinating. <laughs> so I, that's, and that's where I had to go back to my friend and be like, is what I've put together myself over the last like six hours make yeah. any sense? And and you'll find that there's like, you know, let's say one minute detail in the middle where it's just completely hallucinated and giving you the wrong information. Mm. I think uh, the, the one thing you said there that resonates with me is the, the non-judgmental factor. Cause I think for me, having gone to a, kind of below average comprehensive school we didn't really have access to resources or time support all those things because didn't really exist and just generally given the position where a lot of the the kids like me and our families were um it just wasn't that kind of attitude of asking for help because that was a sign of weakness and within that ecosystem you can't show weakness and so it's kind of like almost embarrassing and you just wouldn't. There's high invisible barriers to asking for help. But no, that was because you had agree. to visually ask for it and people would see <laughs> you ask for it and you would appear to be weak. And I know it's I'm getting pretty deep here, but the idea here being then quite simply is what you're suggesting is that you've basically got access to what would otherwise cost you like 100 bucks an hour type level quality tuition on tap where you can ask it to you can ask it anything and it can reframe it to into how you best learn by you just giving it prompts and cues of that really was helpful in the way you described x now can you explain why in the same way you did x sort of thing so yeah, yeah. and i think that the, the other thing is then is like you could be like okay this is my understanding of this thing is that right or wrong? Right. And it always come back to you saying, yeah, you were right. But then X, Y, Z is still wrong. Um, and I, I agree. Same thing when I was at secondary, right. I was 
I would have issues. I'd know I, I don't know it, but I'd sit there in silence and be like, this is what makes 100% sense until the teacher perhaps, you know, 40 minutes later goes around the classroom. I'd be like, back to that thing like 40 minutes ago. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So one thing you mentioned there just before we move on is CQF. And, I, I, and some who are already kind of down the quant pathway will know what that is. But a lot of people listening won't know what, what CQF is. So what is that certification? Yes. So uh, the CQF stands for the Certificate in Quantitative Finance. Um, it's basically a six-month course with like several assessments and like an exam at the end um, designed to pretty much test your knowledge of quantitative finance, I guess, and programming ability applied to like finance. Um, so I get asked quite a lot, actually, is it worth doing or what's so special about it? And I think the, the biggest thing was up until I started it, I thought I knew quant. Like I, I, I knew the concepts, I knew the ideas, but I could never actually tell you how to do quanty things, right? I never knew how to do like arbitrage trading properly, I guess, and thoroughly go through the steps. So I think the um, it, it's similar to like the CFA. Uh, obviously, that's like I got more stages and things like that. But this one's purely like, let's take your Python knowledge and maths knowledge and apply it to a problem. Um, and then you apply it to different problems. So like one of the first things I did was uh, I, I did like a machine learning model where I took, let's say, 10 years of prices. And then I tried to predict, obviously, is tomorrow going to be an up or a down day? That concept I knew for years, right? Like it makes sense that you'll you'll predict stuff. How do we do it? I, I never knew before. Uh, because I didn't know where do you start with these things. Um, and I think the the CQF really opened my eyes to know like how do I actually apply that knowledge um that I have to like financial concepts. Uh, I guess it's similar to like working at Amplify, right? Like or or anyone who actually has a job, you know how to program, you get taught it for like three years. When you get to work, you actually learn how to apply your knowledge i guess to to solve these problems yeah so is cqf something that traditionally someone would do once they're in the workplace rather than parallel with their undergraduate postgraduate studies uh yes i believe so i think the majority of the people i met were either already in, in, in employment and trying to kind of perhaps so i did it with the intention of moving from like being an engineer to being like a quant engineer um so i tried to give myself the background, I guess, to understand quant concepts. So like, let's say if I, I switch career, then I can answer those questions, I guess, more comfortably and have something behind me. Um, it, it costs a dear amount. It's very similar to a master's, I, I guess, in terms of costing. Um, but the be biggest benefit for me was it was after work. So it was like three times a week. Uh, lectures were from like 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and then the assessments were actually like you get like one week to do it in your own time they'll give you like a challenge on a friday and say it's submitted by next friday um so yeah I, I definitely think like once you're in the workplace my understanding is most workplaces do sponsor it as well um so i, I had mine sponsored um and then you can pretty much do it from there like as an upskilling skill i guess okay so before we go into the roles then to conclude you were saying that you definitely need to show more of a rounded individual that you are through potentially pursuing other ways of showcasing yourself, GitHub projects, LinkedIn sharing of knowledge, things like that. And then things like the CQF can be things then once you're upskilling or, or transitioning 
from different roles. So one of the things there you said was engineering and then quant engineering. So for naive people like myself, you'd be like, what's different? So let, let, let's unpack some of these different roles then. So perhaps we could start with um, the first kind of main ones, which are the quant, the quant analyst versus the quant trader. So they're not the same person. <laughs> so what is the difference and what are their what's their daily function and what are their key objectives in those different roles? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing, and even I'm guilty of it, right, is you you put quant into like a big bubble on its own, forgetting that it has all these different components. Um, and then you think of a, you know, I want to be a quant, you assume you're gonna do everything. You think you're going to be sitting on the desk on your Bloomberg terminal, you're monitoring trades and chatting to others. Uh, at the same time, you're going to be writing your algorithms on another screen, perhaps, and, and all this other stuff. Um, so I guess, okay, looking at the, the quant analyst and the quant trader, uh, the biggest difference is that a quant analyst role, I guess, is to take a large data set of data and kind of look into that data to find those patterns and trends that will then support your like kind of trading decisions. Um, and then look at your portfolio because you got to re remember, right? Um, kind of mo in, in most of these big firms, when you're quant trading, you still have you know, assets already bought. You're never starting each, you're not just buying and closing the same assets in every day, right? Um, so this analyst literally all day will, take a data set, uh, compare it, you know, look at the market, um, write some algorithms perhaps that looks at the data set and extrapolates like, okay, there's like, I always use arbitrage because I think it's the easiest concept to understand. Okay. Like there's a, this stock has diverged from the mean by like 10%, right? You, you're likely, it's not going to continue rising unless you're Nvidia, I guess. Um, but you know, most of the time it'll either converge or, you know, you know, come back a little bit, or I guess to to the mean, right? So that mean reversion, someone else is responsible for coming up with that idea. And then once that idea is developed, then like the checks and controls have been put in place because you have to remember, right? Uh, if you're at a, a large firm, you're not trading with your own money; it's someone else's money who's entrusted the firm. So you have to make sure, okay, like what risk management am I going to do here? How much, how big is my position sizing going to be? Um, and all these things. And that'll all be computed by an algorithm, right? But it's still someone's responsibility to look over that and say like, okay, I agree with this or disagree with this bit. Um, yeah, I do remember an example I have is talking to the, the one London hedge fund and their quantitative, um, I think he'll come over the position that he held, but he was talking about alternative data sets and big data sets so he, hedge funds often get presented from these third-party data kind of vendors uh, who try to give them these like weird and wonderful data sets because the idea being, I guess, like you said, you can run an algorithm to extrapolate some type of forward-looking indicator for a potential then move. And the example he gave was about satellite tracking imagery that was converted into data sets that could monitor then traffic and footfall of consumers going into retail centers across Britain to try to identify ahead of traditional backward looking um, fixed data gathering exercises, which look at like shopper footfall and therefore to convert into consumption 
to economic activity, which feeds then into all the economic data sets, which then powers investment bank or central bank decision making. So it's kind of like the very first, first signal that you're trying to find from these quirks in human behavior that you could then extrapolate out down that pathway to get some type of alpha advantage. I thought it was quite an interesting uh, concept. Yeah, because I guess it's like very similar to like when you think of like manual traditional trading, right? But the there you're looking for like perhaps like some leaks in the in the news or a, a, a little thing that you heard from you made over there about something happening. Um, but I guess here it's it's a lot more legal because <laughs> you're just looking at different data sets. Um, so yeah, so that's like what an analyst or a, a researcher perhaps might do. Um, and then you have the quant traders, and and the quant traders are completely different skill set i guess because you're looking for someone who's cool and collective to be able to sit there and kind of monitor the market and the day-to-day -day activities so like once you have these kind of signals generated by your analysts and your researchers someone has to act on those right and it's it's not the same person who's doing the analysis because they're moving on to analyze the next big thing um so the trader is someone who basically works with the trading system on a day-to-day, -day, be it programmatically, or uh, I, I know some firms out there still do it manually, where you'll have a quant trader, but he's just get being fed like automated signals that he then has to execute on through more traditional means, I guess. Um, so let's say we generate a bunch of signals and we have a bunch of orders for today that need to be executed before market close, right? Um I'll have a bunch of different algos perhaps on this trading platform that I have to then deploy to, to get me the best price. Um, so that's where I guess that high frequency trading aspect comes in because it could be that you want to, I don't know, buy a bunch of, uh, bunch of um, an asset, but you're not in a rush, right? It could take a few days to fill your order. Um, so you could deploy it in a way where uh, you're essentially, you know, getting the best price uh, at that point. Um, and then it's your job, to, you know, it's, it's the trader's job to make sure trade ideas become trade executions. Um, and then obviously that goes on to the back office and things like that afterwards for booking. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm guessing then it sounds like there's a lot of kind of almost tech enablement with these types of people, but like that then sounds like it's an awful lot of maintenance of systems and software so is this where the developer side or is it devops or what 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 other area then supports those functions that's quite critical right yeah that's it's a great point um so this was the role i kind of had uh in, in my previous job um where my day-to-day -day was literally between the hours of 9 and 5 p.m you, London time, I am responsible for all trades, you know, going on on this system um, from a technology perspective. So be it like an internet outage or something didn't send or, you know, te normal technical issues, right? Like a uh, request got lost or something got duplicated, the slowdown. Someone, like you said, is responsible for that day-to-day -day, um, kind of being the first line of defense to protect the rest of the tech team almost. Um, you know, talking to a trader. So my role was that kind of, you know, I was the communicating point between a trader um, and the team because, you know, developers talk 
tech, you know, some of them right. might not have the people skills to be able to, you know, talk to a trader who is under pressure, you know, has a bunch of orders to get through. They're facing issues, you know, you know, like standard frustration, right? So they need someone who acts as that middleman, um, can reassure traders. So a lot of mine would be like, you know, we have XYZ people working on this. Don't you worry, it'll be done. Um, at the same time, traders will have questions. Um, so you need that. And I think that's the, the biggest misconception is, hey, I, I, I'm not a quant trader. I'm not a quant analyst, but I still need my quant understanding because when I'm talking to a trader and he's talking about bonds and he's like my execution times, I, I have these like, you know, this is a standard like financial questions. I need to be able to, you know, take that role as the point of contact for the tech team and be able to come across as someone who knows what they're talking about. Otherwise, the trader is going to come back and send some feedback up the up the management line, being like, "This guy doesn't know what he's on about." <laughs> um, so that role is it could be DevOps. Um, it could also go under the name of site reliability engineering. Um, so as, as a DevOps engineer or as a site reliability engineer, um, you're more tech focused, but you need to have that financial understanding to be able to be the bridge, I guess. Um, and I think I think that's a, a big role that people don't realize, you know, happens at these banks. They think it's just uh, you have like quant engineers and quant traders and that's about it, right? They forget about all, like you're saying, the stuff in between. Like when the traders, uh, you know, who, who's looking after them, basically? <laughs> who's there to, to, to make sure the system will, won't fail because, you know, these systems do fail and they uh, they fail quite a lot, actually, depending on... Um, you know, how old they are, how, how legacy the code is and things like yeah, that. I, I can imagine. I mean, again, I'm just speaking from outside looking in that part of the edge that you mentioned earlier is having the latest technology, the best algorithm, updating it because the way the world works now is a current edge can be eroded very quickly. And so you have to evolve. But with evolution comes the greater risk of, yeah, reliability failures, I guess. Um, yeah, and then, right. Yeah, hundred percent. I think um, so. Like the first day that I got into my previous role, the first thing they showed me was a massive map of all the interconnected uh, parts, and it blew my mind because it was like, let's say, twenty different applications supported by twenty different teams of let's say three or four people that have been developed over the last ten years, and they've all been there was like connectors between one application and another because they don't talk to each other in the right way. So you had to have a third application in the middle that was basically a translator from one to another. Um, and then, like I said, there's 20 different engineering teams, which we can get onto after. Um, someone's got to go out and know who's the point of contact out of those 20 engineering teams. Or, you know, I placed a trade, the trade got sent to the broker, the broker sent the trade details back. And then they never got back to us. So where in the pipeline did that fail, right? Someone's, well, I, I had to be responsible for knowing that is the exact point where that message went missing. These are like the teams, I guess, that could have, uh, who could catch that issue, right? So it might be, I need to get the broker on the line. I, I'd, I'd have many Zoom calls where I'd have um, like third party vendors on the call alongside me, alongside like the engineers. And then I guess my job is, well, my job was to mediate that call and make sure that no one's wasting time. Obviously we're time sensitive. Um, you know, 
you've got the issue, you've got the issue, who's doing what, right? It's like incident management, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big thing that's overlooked as well is like, mm. um, and, and on that point, like you're saying, these systems get so big, someone's also got to be responsible for monitoring all those in a way where if a trade goes missing, I need to know right away that a trade has like slipped from the system or, or entered a state where I never got the response back from another bank. Um, there were many times where you'll send a trade out to a different bank and they're having issues on their side and, and we're sitting here like, well, they haven't replied back. Do they not want to trade or right. are we the issue? Is our trades not going out? Mm. Um, so then I have to get on the phone to the other bank and say, hey, we sent you this trade. Have you got it? Where is it lost in the ether? Yeah. And I guess just to give this some context for people new to these concepts, the whole point here about using quantitative methods is volume, right? So yes. this isn't like you and me buying a clip of Tesla shares. I mean, they're buying tens of thousands, millions in, on a daily recurring basis, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, so like uh, I'm saying a lot of this sounds autom uh, manual, but like you said, these systems that are placing the orders and making the executions are automated. Um, so like a trader could be managing a system that's placing like 50 trades let's say every 10 minutes across different assets, right? Hmm. Normal person can't do that, right? Uh, so, yeah. Ooh, you're not seeing me <laughs> loose on the keyboard before. Um, I don't know if you'll have the best executions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, so one of the other roles then that sounds kind of similar in that mediator kind of function is the risk manager. It almost feels like a risk manager to be effective then needs to really understand what the how the system architecture works to identify what potential real or not unreal uh, effects might might impact the overall PL and so forth but then they've also got to understand the quant trader behavior and techniques that's being deployed by the trading team so what what's like a common risk manager where do they fit within this team and then what's their general career route to get to that point? Have they shifted from one of these other roles or are they just predestined to be within risk from the beginning? Uh, so on that point of like, okay, how do you get into like this risk roles? I think um, the biggest thing I noticed was either someone's done a career change. So they'll be like working as an engineer and then they go work on the risk team. Um, obviously with these big banks to keep things fresh people will stay in the bank right but they'll swap between teams like um you might work on the execution team for a year and then you'll go work on the, the team then you might go work on the team that's responsible for like getting the data into the firm um you know you rotate and, and give your two cents everywhere um and then with the risk it's either from what i've noticed it's either your through your internship or you know graduate program when they do their rotations you'll either uh, find people who obviously worked in that sector and fell in love with it and stuck with that. Or you'll find, like I said, uh, people who have kind of been placed there later in their careers. Um, I, I, that's what I've noticed so far as the, the two ways in. Um, third way is obviously if you just apply for the roles, sometimes you might just get lucky and, and get it right. Because um, the, the skills like with risk and, and all of these roles in general are quite overlapping. Um, I guess it's then like you could work, like I said, you could work on execution and then work on risk later. 
because you know the fundamentals are the same. It's just where are your interests in terms of your day to day activities uh, kind of lying. Um, so yeah, and then where does risk fall into this? I guess risk kind of runs for and after the trades. So when this, uh, you know, your quant analyst is pricing up the trades that need to be done for today, they obviously need to know, like you said, the risks for the day. Um, and that's always ma normally managed by like a different system who's just purely responsible for looking at a completely different data set and then, you know, computing different outputs, right? Their goal isn't to generate trades. Their goal is to tell you about potential issues that might be arising from your trades. And then likewise, once you, uh, let's say the, the quant trader has placed their trades and all that's executed, the risk team now needs to update their trades to then kind of flow back to the beginning. So when the quant analyst is making their next set of trades, they're always having the latest bit of information. Because um, the last thing you want is, let's say you're trading throughout the day and your risk positions don't update till tomorrow. You've now placed like trades over like a six, seven hour period not knowing what impact it had immediately, I guess, to the firm's books and things like that. Um, uh, so yeah, risk is 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 fascinating to me because everyone forgets that it's there, but it's mm. like super critical, obviously, because otherwise you're just flying blind and placing orders, not knowing what impact it's having on your like overall portfolio. So sometimes then is the level of mathematical modeling involved with that almost the highest in in risk oh uh i don't i don't know it depends right like i think with the risk models um well it that's a, it's, it's an interesting yeah, question i mean well, how, how about not taking it a different direction which is more it sounds like i mean my 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 career early part was spent very much in the proprietary trading world and so seeing those characters then there was always a great deal of conflict between the interests of the trader or the pm trying to execute at best price or for whatever their opportunity that's presented itself against that of the remit of the risk manager or team which is to safeguard the entity that's beyond the trader that's the organization at large and its adherent to regulation and so forth so is that again like you're explaining that developer devops situation is there quite a lot of you've got to have a certain disposition where you can deal with conflict you can deal with you know on the on the kind of soft skills side of things to, to manage those pressure points so well good question on from a quant perspective from what i've noticed and seen firsthand in the market um the risk is pretty straightforward. Like it's going to be a yes or a no, um, right. right? They have like, che so they'll have like checks and controls in place, right? It will look at your order that you're trying to publish, do all the calculations that you said in the model and either say, yes, you're allowed or no, you're not allowed. Um, like one of the things uh, is, let's say you're going to place a trade um, and where are we going to get the money for that trade? Go to account X, right? That has all these funds. Account X might have a blocker on it saying you're not allowed to trade, I don't know, oil, for example, right? We don't want any like uh, non-environmentally friendly um, mm. assets stored. That risk thing is going to say, no, we don't have the money there. It's going to go to another account and check. We don't have the money there. 
etc etc it'll just keep going until it finds the right allocation available in the funds um and let's say hypothetically we're out of money there's no account that could hold this asset um then you know that you can't really go around it or if you're trading too much because obviously uh these quant algorithms or even the traders have limits for the day it's not like they're on a free-for-all they can't trade billions every day um i think the biggest thing people forget is some strategies will say like okay we can only trade a million pounds worth of this asset and that's it and and once we hit that cap that's it we have to wait for tomorrow um because i guess like you said if you don't have these kind of risk people putting the the controls in place you know we could enter a bad state in in and uh, you know, for these banks, they're basically just operating on a free for all. Algorithm goes wild and says they're going to buy like ten right today, um, and it will just execute on it on its own. Hmm. Okay, so let, let, let's move on. I'm quite curious then about a lot of young people. When you ask them about their ultimate ambition in terms of what role they want to do, they say PM. I want to be a portfolio manager, and I guess the most sought after would be within a quantitative hedge fund PM specifically. So what backgrounds do PMs typically come from? What So what do they do, first of all? And then where, what's their pathway to get to that point? Cool. Uh, yeah, so my, uh, I guess it depends, right? Like some firm, so one thing to know as well is some firms will match the title of a quant PM with the quant trader they sometimes might do the same thing, right? So from my background, what I've seen is this, uh, you know, a PM is directly responsible, I guess, for the overall perspective of a portfolio um, and what they might be. And, and their background normally isn't actually from an engineering perspective. Uh, what I found is that's where your normal, more traditional finance kind of uh, backgrounds and understanding can be placed because you know, it's more than just writing algorithms now. Now you're looking from a purely like, this is my book of assets. How can we deal with this? And um, uh, let's say like the algorithm starts placing, uh, like, so, you know, let's say the algorithm starts placing too much in a specific asset or industry, right? Uh, you you might not have, well, who, who's going to check that it it's, it's like diversifying the portfolio in a correct way? Um, obviously you can have automated systems that do that, but some firms, I think people also forget are still tradition, uh, transitioning, I guess, from being like your traditional, uh, portfolio managing like firm into approach. So these systems are still very manual. And uh, the other thing I've noticed is, um, every PM I've met so far is learning programming in some way or another. Um, so like. The, I guess that's why I tell people, even if you have a financial background, just pick up a bit of Python um, because the PMs, what I found is they spend a lot of time on Excel, right? Doing their models and things like that, because that's where they are traditionally. But then they'll use Python to kind of streamline the processes. Um, and obviously you get recognition from that at your firm. You you look good doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a role that's transitioning. Um, where in the future, perhaps we'll have, you know, I, I guess it's just like people will just generally have a greater understanding for programming for the point of not like creating algorithms, but just actually just kind of making their day-to-day -day workloads more efficient, I guess, just like AI, right? Um, 
some most of these firms would have had their own internal AI application now that I guess most of these PMs can now leverage to uh, make their day-to-day tasks even more, uh, you know, efficient. Yeah. So, so I'm just kind of connecting the dots here. So, so I'm clear. So the use case here for the PM is more using models to determine things like asset allocation, diversification, what investment strategy might be most optimal within a cycle, these sorts of things. So the difference between that and an analyst, the analyst is developing the models and the algorithms, predicting market movements, identifying trends, these sorts of things. And then that kind of plugs into then the manager's top level playbook. And then it's executed by the trader using either their own discretionary or in this case, quantitative methods to interact with how they execute that vision of the PM. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, yeah, PMs are, you know, they're not there on, they're, they're not looking at your day-to-day trading activities, right? Like you said, they're mm. looking at the, the big picture. What will this fund look like in a year? But you've got to be kind of, I guess, technology fluent in order to fully um, take the efficiency out of using these 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 types of methods from a PM's perspective. Okay, so I guess the final ones that I've got on my list to, to kind of ask you about, um, and may, maybe, look, maybe this was me not positioning it appropriately, but a data scientist in finance. So perhaps that example I gave of like the satellite imagery and the big data alternative data set, would that be more of a data scientist function in terms of looking at trying to unearth insights from to formulate investment strategies. And then it's the analyst who develops the more algorithmic kind of tying that into actual, the mechanics of how do we start to build the method for the trader to use to deploy that signal, so to speak. Yeah, I think um, with data science, it's very, um, it's that like kind of one step below, right? Like you're saying where, you know, perhaps the, the skills aren't as, they don't have to be as critical of you because you're not there on that day-to-day trading aspects of things, right? You're very much um, taking a large chunk of data and trying to find that secret source of magic in it, right? Like that needle in the haystack almost um, from a data set. And I think that role is the one where a lot of people can start off in and then perhaps grow into the other roles. Um, I, I think like the composition for data science is obviously there's just way more roles. Um, it, it's it's not as extreme as wanting to be a quant, um, but at the same time, obviously like uh, it's because the the risks are lower, right? Like as a data science, you want mm. as big of a risk to a firm because um, you know your your goal is just to take loads of sheets of data almost. It, it, well, I say sheets, but I mean in like an Excel or Python program and just like shuffle through it all until you find that secret thing um, that links everything together to then pass to the analyst who has to then make all that whatever potential thing you've spotted actually makes sense. Um, So it's like the analyst kind of does the application into real world finance, but then the data scientist is the one who kind of gets everything ready, I guess. So, so the difference between like a, a good data scientist and an average data scientist, it almost sounds like, it almost sounds like that I always kind of think maths and spreadsheets and it's kind of very uniform and quite rigid, but actually 
it's almost the opposite. Do you actually need a high degree of creativity to be able to be curious enough to probe data, to think laterally, to think creatively, to try and then uh, almost look at a problem in a different angle to then probe date, big data sets to come up with um, an idea that perhaps someone's never thought of before? I mean, is that the holy grail of data science of what you're trying to extrapolate? I, I believe so, because you, because I guess that, that's it, right? You're every day you're there. It's it's similar to like being a researcher at like a uh, educate like at university, right? You're you're there every day trying to push the boundaries mm. on something that no one else has seen. Maybe it'll be called after you or not, <laughs> whatever trend that you find. But um, yeah, I 100 agree. I think um, a lot of these roles, people for people forget, I guess, especially in engineering is you do have to be quite creative mm. because, you know, doing the same. And, and that's the problem with AI. AI will obviously just suggest what it's been taught. It won't make new things for you or won't do. And I, I find it all the time is like, I, I have an issue with some code. Let's say it won't suggest me the next thing of how to fix it. It will just rehash old answers and say like, did you try this? Did you try that? I'm like, yes, but like, what else can I try? And it doesn't know, right? Because it doesn't have that like kind of creative process just yet. So I think it's the same with the data science, right? It's like you have to be very patient, but also like quite resilient, I guess, because you're going to churn through so much data and perhaps everything fails. And then you're waiting for that one day where it's like Eureka, it worked. Mm. Okay, I've got got two more. Yes. <laughs> um the next the next one's quite i guess new in a sense of is there now an area of where machine learning fits in to this so more like i don't know ai agi machine learning all that type of stuff that's really popular now are financial firms um diving into that at the same rate of change that say big tech is for example uh, I, I think so. I, I think the biggest uh, thing I noticed um, was, well, I was there, I guess, when like OpenAI announced their APIs um, and made them like publicly accessible. Um, and to my surprise, the firm I was at was already kind of pre-working with them on, or just pre-working in general on AI um, and trying to make it, put it in the hands of every employee in the firm so that everyone can be a bit more expressive. Now, the adoption for the adoption of AI, I guess, so far has been engineers taking their day-to-day -day problems and kind of uh, speeding them up. Um, obviously, as an engineer, uh, one of my responsibilities is to write up tasks and tickets and you know plan out my day. And then at the same time, in my previous role, right, it was like if I was managing an incident, I need to summarize the incident before I'd have to read through the whole thread <laughs> and then you know write my summary. One of the things that uh, can be developed and, and and put into Slack quite easily actually is, um, kind of you know read the thread, summarize the thread for me. The AI basically just reads that and puts it in. But the question is, who's the one developing that? And I think that's where you'll see like a shift in in roles where, you know, not a prompt engineer, but uh, you know, a more traditional. Uh, computer scientist who I guess knows how to best work with open AI's APIs, how to like um, create like the the embeddings and the models that can then be trained on specific data. Um, yeah, go ahead. So it could quite a popular 
um, well, not popular, but could quite a, a good angle to attack an application cycle is on your portfolio of things that you're creating is having lots of GPTs that you might have created by plugging into like the API of of these companies and designing something which kind of like helps efficiency, for example, that companies can see that you're 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 pretty much at the edge of when these things are rolling out, you're moving pretty quickly to demonstrate your understanding of it. Yeah, I think um let's say as a student, um you do get access to a lot of free online tools for hosting things. So if you wanted to like grab the API and throw together a document where a website where let's say okay earnings reports come out we upload the earnings reports it summarizes them for me done that as a tool is what like the ui will be like a singular page you upload a pdf the pdf goes to your back end and then connects to openai and does a bunch of stuff in my opinion that's not too complicated like you know there's only uh, three or four pieces to put together and it's quite easy to put them together with like all the content that's on youtube and things like that but then like if I saw that on a CV and I can go to that website because it's hosted for free because of like the resources that students get, that would definitely stand out to me. I'd be like, okay, and that's just one tool. That's just one application. You could apply it to a thousand things. Um, connect your GPT with a live news feed from Yahoo Finance perhaps and just analyze the news and say, is it positive or negative? Mm. Simple thing, right? No one might actually have an application for it, but you know, it's, it's impressive. You know, you can agree probably it is impressive if you saw that on someone's CV and then make a LinkedIn post about it. Um, when you go to your interviews, it gives you something to talk about rather than the standard, like, well, I used to always mention D of E, um, over and over again, <laughs> even though it was like five years after I'd done it because I wasn't doing anything else at that point. Um, but now I, I think I, I learned and matured to the point where I can, when I go to an interview, I don't talk about my previous work. I will talk about what I'm doing outside of work, be it like some random website that no one's ever going to see or it will never go live, but it's there. Um, and right. So, so, I mean, this this is great because I think this really does level the playing field because what you're saying is that it's really, there's no limitation. The only limitation is how far you can think about different solutions to different problems and as you said, a lot of it can be freely available and put together in a fairly succinct way. So, yeah, hopefully when students are feeling the pressure of extreme competitiveness and perhaps in an economic downturn scenario where there could be job cuts or a, a non-complementary kind of macro scenario, actually all you've got to think about was I just need to get more creative and double down on my strategy of what making myself unique. Okay, so... Cool. The last one then is uh, a regulatory quantitative analyst. So, so almost again, like I did with the data scientists and the quant analyst. I guess this is somewhat a subset of risk. The risk manager is what sitting above it all, monitoring from the high tower. Whereas the regulatory quant analyst is satisfying a very well. This is obviously is a very important role, right? Because efficiency i think we all think about in like trade execution terms but efficiency and adherence to regulatory uh stipulations is obviously critical because you know fines can be large and frequent so yeah any insight on the regulatory kind of analyst front 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing people forget is, uh, and it obviously isn't glorified or looks as fancy as being on the front office uh, on the on the desk, right? Is after your trades are booked, there's a long process of what has to happen. They have to be fed back to like a centralized point, obviously for regulatory purposes. We have to make sure were you even allowed to trade that? Um, did you trade too much? Um, are you even a trader? That's a simple check. Who placed the trade? Like, are you even supposed to be trading, right? Um, these things can slip through. Um, and that, it, from what I've seen, is a very manual process right now. You have dedicated kind of trade assistants uh, or, you know, um, people working in the regulatory space where their every day is literally like sit on a Bloomberg terminal, see trades coming in. Let's say map those trades with like the compliance checks and everything and make sure that the orders are in in in, in a good state that process at some firms you'll find is is like you said not automated right so you'll there is space for people to come in into these well people to who have an understanding of these regulations and then apply some programmatic way of speeding up that process because let's say you automate and it's it's at the expense of these people who are doing it manually <laughs> right now but let's say you come in and, and automate those processes then obviously you know you're saving this firm thousands no hundreds of thousands of pounds you'll do great in your career um it might not look as flashy but obviously from the top top down you know everyone will respect what you're doing cuz you know i think the the biggest conception is People think just because you're in the back office, you're not as important. But when you're running these large firms, every little component underneath you is 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 very critical and important to you, um, despite what public appearances might come across as, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, all these roles that we've discussed, all the software they're using, someone has to make that as well. Um, so there is companies out there that will supply the large firms with this software so be it that you don't have the perhaps you just have FOMO right you you don't think you uh uh you want to work in finance but then at the same time you have imposter syndrome as well and you're like maybe I'm not good enough to be at a quant firm you have to remember there are like all the vendors out there that provide the software to these firms because not every firm has the money to to run a tech team internally who can develop like proprietary systems Bloomberg is a great example. Bloomberg provides the terminals to pretty much every firm, right? So Bloomberg will have a team that needs to understand the needs of the firm and do all the engineering stuff related to that. Yeah. Interestingly, actually talking to the hiring team at Bloomberg not so long ago, it is actually quant analysts that they need the most in their hiring initiatives at the moment, over and above what people typically think is like news-based um, and sales kind of activities. Um, it's actually technology and quant students that they look for. So I think that's a really good point, actually, not to get too invested in, I have to work at a quant hedge fund. It's kind of like saying, I have to work at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. Like, that's great. Uh, you know, have ambition and set your sights high. But understand, though, that actually the pyramid is biggest at the base. And then all the all the vendors, suppliers, if you follow the supply chain almost, there's so many inputs that go into particularly, I think, technology-led financial firms. Yeah, because like we haven't even touched on it, but like where does all the data come from? 
not every firm has their own connection to like the right. CME, right? There is someone whose business is literally, we have a bunch of servers. Let's get you hooked up to those servers. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking hardware, that's another conversation there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, hardware, exactly. cloud, and yeah, um, conversation goes. That's what I mean. So I think like, Quant is lovely, and I uh, I love Quant, but um, there are ways to be involved in Quant and still be there, just without having to have all the stress as well, right? So I think the be the best thing about my previous role was I was finished at five. Like no one's gonna come chasing for me at eight p.m. because there's a different team in the states that would take over after me. Likewise, before I wake up, there's a different team in uh APAC that would uh, cover for me. Um, so I think that's the other thing is like. Look, perhaps someone wants to work in quant, but factor in the rest of your life, right? Like work-life balance. Uh, what do you enjoy? You know, and 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 that's the thing I noticed. A lot of people I meet want to be quants. They'll get a taste of it, realize they have to sacrifice quite a lot, unfortunately, just because of the nature of any kind of frontline job like that, right? You're you're very important. Uh, you're a very important person, and you'll be rewarded for it. But obviously, there are, are sacrifices to be made. Um, so do you think there's a misconception that people think because quants are leaning on um, machine-led solutions, algorithmic trading, high frequency, whatever it might be, that almost like you're offloading the stress, but in actuality, you're almost compounding the stress because now you're talking <laughs> high volume and high high quantities of like magnitude of risk on the line. What you're doing is just almost even more than what you could achieve as a human so that doubles down on the stress yeah because you're, you're pretty much like writing something and then saying yeah i have full faith in the system to do everything right. i wanted it to do but the problem is because you work you're working with millions of pounds you're not going to just turn your eye you, you know like if you're an hour and you got like a hundred pound on the line fine i can look away i can go to bed <laughs> worst case i wake up i've lost a hundred pounds as a quant you're pretty much going to be Staring it down, watching every trade go in and out to be like, you best not mess up. Because, you know, it, it's code at the end of the day, right? Like, mm. you know, you, you where there'll be bugs that even the engineer never intended there to be. It's just oversight because mm. there's like a bazillion moving parts in the thing. But then on the flip side, the ultimate upside out of this whole thing, though, is that you can act then on the cutting edge of technology, putting yourself right at the front foot of finding new ways to extract uh, money essentially in creative ways that people have never even thought possible yeah because I, I think um the big drive i see in the people who are successful in like being a quant trader or a quant alice is they won't stop until their strategy or whatever they whatever they think they see they won't stop until it's either like confirmed to be absolutely non-existent or it's working um so it does take a particular mindset to be like it's broken it keep going keep going keep going and you know like mm. it, you don't just write i think that's the other thing you don't just write an algorithm and go okay cool go make me money it's, it's it goes through extensive amounts of testing um, right so this and, is that age-old yeah. stem thing about basically your problem solving Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, first you come up with an idea, then you probably spend 90% of your time solving the issues caused by your right. new idea. Um, and, and in the end, some of most of them will probably fail, right? Like most strategies just just don't work. You, you, you always go back to like 
more tr traditional ways of trading, I guess. But uh, but then like the satisfaction of it. if you crack something that no one else has, you're you're, you're going to be flying. Mm. Cool. Well, look, if you've been going for a while, so let's wrap it up <laughs> here. I know we've discussed that. Um, look, wherever we share this, if it's on Spotify, I know you can drop comments. Uh, or if even if it's a review on Apple or on a LinkedIn post where we share the episodes, um, Millen's probably going to join me um, every few weeks where we'll we'll discuss another related topic around the area of quantitative finance. But if there's something specific you want to hear about from him, then just drop us a comment, let us know, and we'll try and wove it into the next conversation. But Millen, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Ant. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.